When you're looking at an image, it helps you if you can see it right side up. You can actually kind of get your mind around it a little bit. One of the most frustrating things to me is every once in a while on my iPad, I will get a picture that's upside down. An iPad doesn't let me just turn it like this. It continues to be upside down. But I'm not a quitter. I'll figure out how to do this. What I've learned to do over time is just tilt my head like this so that I can see it. Or if you just put it between your legs, you can do this. I got caught doing that one time by a friend of mine and he was just like, what are you doing? And I said, well, the picture's upside down. And he showed me this very cool thing that you can do with your iPad. There's a little button right there that's called the orientation lock. Now, when you have a picture that's upside down, boom, you can just look at it. That's free. Little technology help from your friends here at Journey. You liked that, didn't you, Dakota? That was good. God's kingdom is upside down. Following Jesus is upside down. It's completely countercultural. And if you really go after following him, you're going to realize that it's counterintuitive as well. When Jesus stepped onto the scene at the very beginning of his ministry, his message about the kingdom was very concise. He said, repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. That word repent has this idea of reorientation. It's about changing your mind. Take things that are upside down and turn them right side up if you're gonna understand how to live in the kingdom. We've got to learn how to repent. Over the next several weeks, what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be looking at one of the most famous sermons of Jesus, probably the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. And what the Sermon on the Mount is for us is that orientation lock. We need to put our finger on that and look at what Jesus is talking about, this upside down kingdom, and turn it right side up in our lives and go after it with everything that we've got. Because in this sermon, Jesus describes what his people are to be and what it is that they're to do. What does life look like and what does our community of faith look like when we are living fully inside the kingdom of God? When we take Jesus at his word and we do what he says and we repent, we change our mind, we change our thinking and we bow our knee to the king of kings and the Lord of lords and we make him the king of our kingdom. I want us to just be reflective for a second and just think honestly about your own life. Maybe even just think honestly about our own church. When people that are outside of here look at our lives, look at our church, do they see something that is upside down? Do they see something that is totally countercultural? Do they, when they look in and see our lives and see our community, do they say there is life there? There's light there. I see love and I see joy and I see authenticity. I see people connected to one another and loving one another and bearing one another's burdens. Is that what they see? Or do they see something else? 
If statistics mean anything to you, statistics say that generation after generation in our country, the percentage of people that are looking to the church for the ultimate questions in life, that piece of the pie is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking with every generation. We can assign a lot of things to that in terms of trying to decide why, but I think part of it is, maybe a lot of it is, is that we're not that different. We're not that different from them. And here's the problem, friends. Our natural inclination, if we do what comes naturally to us, we wanna be just like everybody else. I don't wanna be different from anybody else. I wanna conform to the world around me. That's what human behavior naturally draws us toward. I wanna show you this humorous video. If you were at the Global Leadership Summit, you saw this video, but it's a candid camera video that just captures in old school, way before punked, captures in old school this propensity that we have to wanna be like everybody else. Let's watch this. The gentleman in the elevator now is a candid star. These folks who are entering, the man with the white shirt, the lady with the trench coat, and subsequently one other member of our staff will face the rear. And you'll see how this man in the trench coat <laughs> tries to maintain his individuality, but little by little, He looks at his watch, but he's really making an excuse for turning just a little bit more <laughs> to the wall. Now we'll try it once again. Here's the candid subject. Here comes the candid camera staff, three of them at least. And uh, this man has apparently been in groups before. <laughs> Here's a fella with his hat on in the elevator. First he makes a full turn to the rear and Charlie closes the door. A moment later, we'll open the door. Everybody's changed positions. <laughs> now we'll see if we can use see if we can use group pressure for some good. Now, in a moment, on Charlie's signal, everybody turns forward. Notice, they take off their hats. And now, do you think we could reverse the procedure? Watch. We want to be like everybody else. But this is what's so problematic in the kingdom of God, is that God's plan from the very beginning, even way back in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, is that he wanted to call out a people that would belong to him and would be obedient to him, that would follow him 
in every way. He called it a holy people, set apart unto him. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, he's talking about the church, that we would be different. And because we were different, because of how we lived our life differently, it would show and it would tell the greatness of God. True followers of Jesus will be different in who we are and how we live. Not weird different, not obnoxious different, not judgmental different, not standoffish different, but people that are truly following Jesus in his kingdom will be different. And as we jump into the Sermon on the Mount, what you need to understand is this is probably in the New Testament the most complete description that we have of this countercultural life that Jesus calls his followers to live. As we jump into Matthew chapter five today, the very beginning of the sermon, Jesus asks and answers a very simple question. What is the good life? What is a blessed life? Because whether you believe it or not, Jesus wants you to have a blessed life. But he wants you to have a blessed life the way he defines a blessed life. And friends, that's gonna be upside down from what the world tells us. Matthew chapter five, starting in verse one. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. What is the blessed life? Those who are poor and those who realize their need for him. If I were to try to create a visual picture for you what that looks like, it would look like this in my mind. Poor and realizing our desperate need for him. In God's kingdom, we find him when we get to the place that we realize we have nothing to offer him. We bring nothing to the table. We have nothing to plead before a holy and righteous God. Nothing but our broken life before him. But when you think about what our world calls the blessed life, would this be the posture that they would give? Desperation, poverty, not having resources, that is the complete opposite of what our world would call the blessed life. But who was it that found life in Christ? Who was it whose lives were transformed? It was the poor. It was the prostitutes. It was the tax collectors. Those were the, those that were reviled in their culture. It was the woman caught in adultery. It was the sick. It was the marginalized on every level. The ones who realized, I have nothing to offer you, Jesus, but I want you. Those are the ones who found him. And friends, it's true today too. The only way we find Jesus, 
the way that he wants us to find is when we realize our desperate need before him. I have nothing to offer you, Jesus, but my broken life. Who missed Jesus in the first century? The elite missed him. The wealthy missed him. The religious people missed him. Because they believed somewhere, somehow, I have something to offer you. In fact, you would be lucky to have me on your team. And they completely missed. They missed their desperate need. Why is desperation a prerequisite for kingdom life? Because it's only when we come to that understanding that we have that desperation, that we will see what Jesus offers with the magnitude that it is, the beauty that it is, the jewel that it is. And when we see it in that light, we say, I will give everything to follow that. When we see it in light of our desperation, we say, I'll do anything to reorient my life around you, Jesus, and what it is that you call me to do. We're willing to reorient our life, to turn it upside down. In the upside down kingdom, Jesus goes on to say, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning? Really, that's the blessed life, Jesus? That's the best you got? The blessed life is about mourning? Jesus says that people that enter my kingdom, they understand that this world is not as it should be. This is not the way I intended it to be. And what Jesus is saying is that God blesses those people who mourn over that when they see the brokenness in this world. Friends, there's brokenness everywhere. Everywhere around us. Tragedy, injustice, death, loss, evil, pain, suffering. It's everywhere. And people that live in the kingdom, it breaks their hearts. But Jesus means something more than that. It's not just that we mourn the brokenness out there in the world. Jesus would say the people that find my kingdom are the people that mourn the brokenness in here, in their own life. The world's not just broken out there. I'm broken too. And my brokenness is contributing to the brokenness of this world. And we grieve over that because we know just as the world out there isn't as it should be, my life is not as it should be either. And we mourn over our brokenness and our sin. We're willing to acknowledge our sin, not try to cover it up. We acknowledge it and we grieve it. I love what David wrote in Psalm 51 as he was grieving and wrecked over his own sin. He said this, Psalm 51, starting in verse 16. God, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. What Jesus says and what David is affirming here is that God's presence His comforting presence moves toward those who mourn over their own brokenness. God wants to be our comforter, but we've got to get to that place where we actually mourn the things that grieve him. In the upside down kingdom, Jesus continues, God blesses those who are humble, 
for they will inherit the whole earth. The adjective that's used to describe their humble, sometimes it's translated gentle or meek. I know some of you are thinking, I don't want to be gentle and meek. Because we hear gentle and meek, we think wimpy, wussy, and weak. Nothing could be further from the truth. This same adjective was described of Jesus. He is gentle and humble of heart. Jesus was anything, anything but a wimp. I mean, he was a construction worker for crying out loud. Think hard hat, think tool belt, think gnarled hands from a life of working hard. He was a man's man. When you hear meek, when you hear that word, you can't think powerless. Meek does not equal powerless. Meek equals powerful. But power under control. Power under control is what is true in the kingdom of God. I don't think that there's a greater picture of power under control, the meekness of Jesus, than at the very end of his life. This whole company of soldiers has taken Jesus and they've thrown thrown him into the middle of them. And Jesus, who claimed to be the king of the Jews, they began to mock him as the king of the Jews. This is God in the flesh. They strip him of his clothes and they put a purple robe on him to mock him as the king. Hail, king of the Jews. If you're a king, let us take this crown of thorns and let's mash it on your head till the blood runs down in your face and you can't even see. And they continue to mock him. Hail, king of the Jews. Then they picked up a stick and they began to beat him in the face. If he couldn't have seen through the blood as his face began to swell, I'm sure he couldn't have seen. So they started to mock him. They said, Jesus, if you are the king of the Jews, prophesy. Who is it that hit you? These men mocked the face of God. And then the text tells us, one by one, yeah, that's gross, isn't it? They spit in his face. They spit in the face of God. And what does Jesus do? Nothing. He did absolutely nothing. You're going to have to forgive me, but I watch that scene and I read about that and I just think, Jesus, kill them. Kill just one of them. Make an example out of them. Jesus did nothing. The voice of Jesus that spoke powerfully to create everything that we see in this world. He created those people that were mocking him. And the only reason they were able to take their next breath was because he allowed it. He said nothing. Until, as Luke accounts, Jesus looked up to heaven and he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Power under 
control. He could have done anything to them. He could have taken their life in an instant. Power under control. But in God's kingdom, we don't use power to take revenge on people around us. We leave that in the hands of God. And as if that wasn't enough, as the story continues, Jesus actually moves to the cross to give his life, to pay the penalty for sin that would give these mockers the opportunity if they so choose to spend eternity with him, power under control. Gives us a little perspective, doesn't it? When we think about how we respond to people around us that wrong us. It's upside down in God's kingdom. Jesus continues, in the upside down kingdom, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Righteousness. Probably the simplest way to say it is, it's a life that conforms to the will and to the word of God. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that because they're the ones that are gonna be satisfied. A little bit of a play on words there. Who is it that's satisfied? And that word meaning not just mildly satisfied, completely satisfied, overflowing satisfied, bloated. Who is it that is ultimately satisfied? Those who are hungry. Those who are thirsty. I've got to get down on my knees and just say, am I hungry? Am I hungry for the righteousness of God to do God's will, to follow his word? Am I hungry? Those are the people that are satisfied, that don't chase the stuff of this world, but they see who he is and what he's like, and they say, that's what I want. I want that more than anything else in the world. What are we chasing? In the upside down kingdom, Jesus goes on to say, God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And mercy is just nothing more simply than compassion for people in need. If we think about how this world works, and I'm afraid sometime how we work, is that we want to try to protect ourselves a little bit from the brokenness of this world. We want to insulate ourselves from that from pain and brokenness and sin. We might see it out there and think that is disappointing that that's happening, but I'm not gonna roll my sleeves up and get involved in the muck of this world. Jesus says, that doesn't make sense in my kingdom. We might, we might look at that and say, that person needs mercy, but look at the decisions that they've made to put them in that place to need mercy. Someone that lives in the kingdom of God understands that they have received mercy. They have received grace. They have received forgiveness beyond anything that they did or deserved. And because they know that they were in that desperate place before God and he poured out his mercy, the only thing that makes sense for someone that's living like that is that they would extend that same mercy to others. The kingdom is upside down. We are constantly looking for needs out there and running to places where there are needs, not trying to insulate ourselves from it. The kingdom runs to the places where there are need. Oftentimes as I'm preparing the things that I'm gonna say, I just try to imagine 
what might people be thinking and saying at different times when I say certain things? This is what wrecked my heart, thinking about what I just said there. I believe that there are people in this room right now that you would say, I have desperate needs. But I'm afraid that you would also say, and nobody in this room knows it. You might even be saying to yourself, nobody in this room even knows my name, much less my needs. Friends, that can't be the case. When Jesus talked about what would be the greatest thing that would set us apart, that would make us look different from the world, that would make us an upside down counterculture, it's about us and how we love one another, how we bear one another's burdens. And I know that it's true that there are people saying, nobody knows my needs, nobody knows my names. Friends, that can't be the case. We've got to change that. And I just want to warn you a little bit. Over this next season of the life of our church, we're either going to figure out how to do this, or I'm going to die, or I'm going to get fired, or Jesus is going to come back. (laughs) Because we are going to figure out how to get out of rows and get into circles and be able to look each other in the eye, know one another's needs, know how to love one another, know how to bear one another's burdens. If that's the greatest thing that's gonna show the God that we love off to the world around us, we've gotta figure out how to do it. And I'm just gonna say, if that bothers you, if you don't want that, friends, I'm just gonna say, this may not be the church for you. If you just wanna come here and leave, This may not be the church for you. We've got to learn how to do this for our king's sake. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus continues, God blesses those whose hearts are pure for they will see God. Jesus starts to communicate. It's not just about a kingdom that's upside down. It's actually a kingdom that is inside out as well. He cares about the heart. He cares about the things that are happening on the inside. Not just external behavior, not just what you do, but why you do what you do. I have no doubt that as Jesus was communicating this to this group of Jewish disciples that were sitting in front of them, as he talked about the pure will see God, they probably thought of David and Psalm 24. They knew the scriptures. This is what David said. He said, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? His holy set apart place. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. David was someone who wanted clean hands and a pure heart. The scriptures talk about David being someone who was a man after God's own heart. But if we, if we just look at the behavior of David, his moral achievement in life, you would say his life was a train wreck. He's a horrible example. But here's what we see over David's life over the long haul, is that he continually would bring his heart before the God of the universe and say, God, I want my heart to be pure before you. Where David would say what we read in Psalm 139, he said this, He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Look at my heart. Show it to me, God. 
Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. Anything. Anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. What made David a man after God's own heart is that he continually would come back and just say, God, I care more about what you know than what other people think. God, I want a pure heart before you. And he dealt with his sin before God and before people. He was willing to pursue purity of heart. Friends, if we're gonna live fully inside the kingdom, we've got to be like that. If we want to see God and connect with him and relate with him, we've gotta be the kind of people that are willing to live our life with the roof off and our relationship with God. Just let the light of his truth shine in to our life. Expose anything that he wants to expose. Roof off. But also a group of people that live with the walls down in their relationships with one another. We don't have to hide from one another. We're accepted by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We care more about what he thinks than what other people think. And that's why we can live in his kingdom with authenticity and integrity. Integrity is not moral perfection. Integrity means that my life is integrated. The outside matches the inside. You can be a train wreck mess and be a person of integrity because you're letting people see it. You're letting God shine his light into it. That is a person of integrity. But in God's kingdom, he has no room for posers, no room for hypocrisy. In his upside down kingdom, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Sin and brokenness entered the world. Happened on about page three of the Bible, right away. What happened? The consequence of sin, friends, was separation. Separation everywhere we look. There was separation between God and people. Adam and Eve, who used to walk with him in the garden, now we're trying to hide from him because there was separation and division. But there wasn't just separation between God and people, there was separation between people. Adam and Eve felt like they needed to hide from each other. Suddenly I realized I'm naked and I'm ashamed and I want to cover up. Division between people, division between God. And even I would say division between people and themselves. God intended us to be these beings that would relate with him as children, as accepted, as loved. But now internally, so many are just bombarded with feelings of fear and guilt and shame, separated from who God created us to be. Separation everywhere. We see it everywhere and we experience it everywhere. What Jesus is saying is that the person that lives in my kingdom, wherever they see separation, they move toward it and they try to bring reconciliation. We try to reconcile people to the God who created them explaining who he is and what it is that he's done for them. When we see division among people, we don't gossip and talk about it. We do whatever we can to bring people back together, bring reconciliation. And when we see disconnect in people's lives, that they're living out an identity and a reality that doesn't conform to who God says they are, we try to help them bring reconciliation to that. 
A person of the kingdom believes in God's power, believes in God's love in a way that they know that he can bring peace where there's separation and brokenness. And lastly, Jesus says, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus doesn't promise us that following him in the kingdom is gonna be an easy life. Where these two kingdoms collide, the upside down kingdom and the right side up kingdom, or as the scriptures also talk about the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, at the margins, where those two kingdoms clash, there is friction and there's battle. All we can do is just look at the life of Jesus. He lived the upside down life perfectly, without flaw, and it cost him his life. Persecution. You know, when I read through what the scriptures call the Beatitudes, one of the things that come to my mind is, Jesus, you are the worst salesman ever. If you wanted people to jump on this kingdom thing, you gotta work on your infomercial a little bit better. Desperation, mourning, and wait, there's more. Persecution, jump on with me. Not a great salesman. But throughout this sermon, you're gonna see the hand of Jesus reaching out to those that are his disciples and would be his disciples, reaching out his, their, his hand and saying to them, Will you follow me? Will you follow me into this upside down kingdom? Even if it makes absolutely no sense to you whatsoever, even if it's completely counterintuitive, will you come with me? And maybe there's something in us that says, man, Jesus, just in light of what you've even described, I can't do that. I don't have what it takes to live that kind of life. You know what Jesus would say? That's okay. I do. And that's why you need to grab my hand. And you need to let me live my life through you, through the power of my Holy Spirit. You need to learn to walk in my footsteps. You need to learn to practice my ways. You need to learn to hear and respond to my voice. Will you follow me? Will you follow me into that kind of upside down life? As we get ready to hit the end, there's something that I just feel like I, I want you to have this visual in your mind as you think about the next several weeks as we teach on the Sermon on the Mount. I don't want you to think about the Sermon on the Mount as a horizontal bar. Some people see it that way, that the Sermon on the Mount is this horizontal bar, this standard that I need to get to and get over in order to be accepted by God. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount was intended to be. Jesus is teaching this sermon to his disciples, those people that have said, I'm all in with you. He's assuming acceptance. You come at this as a child. You are already accepted. This isn't a bar for you to get over. But he wants us to understand the Sermon on the Mount as a vertical bar that describes two different kingdoms, two different ways of living. And as we start working through the Sermon on the Mount, you're gonna hear Jesus say things like, 
you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you, two different ways of living. He's continually contrasting. There's two different roads. There's a wide road that leads to destruction and there's a narrow road that leads to life. There's two kinds of fruit. There's bad fruit and there's good fruit. And lastly, friends, one of the things that Jesus talks about is there's two responses that we can make to his sermon, to his teaching. Matthew 7 Starting in verse 24, at the very end of Jesus' sermon, this is what he says. He says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. He's not sharing all this for our consideration. He's saying, take my words and follow them. Put it into practice. Do the things that you hear me talking about, that you see me living out. And you will be wise, like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. Though the rain comes down in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and does not obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash it's a vertical bar two different ways to live you have heard it said but I say to you and every week we're going to give you this invitation this opportunity what are you going to do about it what are you going to do with these words of Jesus we're going to do the thing that the wise person does or what the foolish person does I want to give you an opportunity right now I don't know what it is that God wants you to do as a result of this sermon, but what I'm certain of is that he does. And I trust in the power of his Holy Spirit to be able to communicate to you, to your spirit, what it is that he wants you to do. I wanna just create a little bit of quiet right now for you to just ask the question of God. God, what is it that you wanna say to me? To me? How do you want me to respond to you in obedience? Let's pray together. Let's pray. God, I just want to confess to you right now that I need your help. I need your help to live this out. God, we laughed at those guys in the elevator that turned around when everybody else turned around. But on most days, God, that's probably me. I just want to do what everybody else is doing. But I know, God, you called us to live in your kingdom, your upside-down kingdom. Would you give me, would you give my friends, would you give our church, would you give all the churches in our valley, all the churches around the world, would you give us the courage that it takes to turn around in that elevator and obey you, God, whatever it is that you're asking us to do. We don't want to take any shortcuts. We just want to be and do who you want us to be and what you want us to do. God, give us courage. Give us courage. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information 
or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.